Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of Teams at Work. Super excited to be here today with Mary Williams of Clio. Hi, Mary. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It's super amazing. And hey, Anthony, as per usual, nice to be with you as well. Hello, hello, and uh, excited for this conversation with you, Mary. Super same. I'm very, as you can maybe notice, I'm a little bit nervous because I think, Mary, you're some sort of like this person I want to be when I'm grown up, even though I'm grown up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this feeling. Um, So I'm just, I know we don't like do proper intros, but like you've been the CTO of Moo, Monzo, Helix, and now Plio, and I've basically skipped like five other chapters of your career. So I am rightfully nervous, I think. What do you think was the biggest challenge you've encountered so far? And what is like the biggest learning you made? Building, scaling, and nurturing all these engineering teams over almost 20 years of your tech leadership career so far. Yeah. The biggest challenge was Monzo. So I joined Monzo when there were under a million customers. We'd just become a bank. We grew to 4 million customers in the time I was there, but the tech team also tripled in size whilst I was there. But that was particularly tough for a really specific reason, which was I was coming in and taking over from a, a CTO co-founder who was very beloved and, and very wonderful. And I'd actually been mentoring him, Jonas, before I joined the company. And it was super hard to come into this very established, very strong culture and to be able to see some of the growing pains we were going to have. But then I think I kind of failed at articulating how much it was going to hurt and getting people to prevent the pain rather than experiencing it and then dealing with it. And so I I kind of loved my time at Monzo, but really regret not having had a better and bigger impact there. Because I think if I'd managed to get across to people those challenges we were going to have, we would have we would have avoided more of them rather than living through so many of them. Thank you so much for being so open about that Monzo experience. I mean I'm I'm sure always looking back and and hindsighting is on the one hand valuable, but on the other hand, also very tough because obviously everyone like always means well and then things sometimes go well and sometimes they don't. But I would love to understand a little bit more about the challenges that you encountered. And also if you kind of look back and you think like there is one thing I could do differently or there's like these two things I could do differently, very specifically in terms of tactics, what would that be? Yeah. So I... I think two things I would have done very differently, and, I, and I'm actually trying to do really differently now that I'm at Plio. One is communicating really crisply, but repeatedly. So getting the point across, but making sure that people hear it multiple times. There's some research that shows people only really hear you if they've heard something seven times, which uh, 
feels very repetitive if you're the one saying it, but apparently it's not as repetitive for the person hearing it. And then the second thing is, I think in my previous roles, I've underestimated how much my own happiness and enjoyment of the role affects other people. So one of the big reasons that I chose Pleo when I was looking for my most recent role after recovering from long COVID was how much the exec team was a team. Because, you know, as a senior leader, you end up in the situation where you have your organization that you look after, but they're not your first team. Your first team are your peers. They're the, you know, the CFO, the CEO, the CXOs that, that you work alongside if you're a CTO like me. And so one of the things I really love at Plio is that they're so invested in being a great team and not just a group of executives. We spend a week together every month. And that's a huge investment for the C-level team of a company. But it really said to me that they cared so much about being a great first team that it was somewhere that I was going to feel like that really mattered. Because I've had a lot of organizations where I've loved my organization, my set of engineers and technologists and data folks, but we haven't necessarily been as fully integrated into the broader business as I'd like us to be. And so this was a real opportunity to take a different approach to that coming in at Plio. So those are the two things I would do. I suppose would do differently and doing differently now that I'm in my next role. It's interesting because this concept of first team, I also learned for the first time from like Patrick Lencioni's book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, where they walk you through this example of kind of if you don't realize how important it is to be aligned on this like very top level of management, everyone else suffers. So it's really interesting to see and also great to hear that it's, it is a huge investment one week every month. Like how does that work in reality? Do you just kind of work side by side? Is this like an, how does that go? We have an offsite together every month. So we travel to the same location. We try to move it around to our different offices so that our different teams see us. And then we, we spend the first three days of the week just offsite together. And then the end of the week, we spend with the team in whichever site that we're in. So the first three days are, are kind of together and then two days working side by side. Super cool. I think when you sort of extrapolate across engineering leadership in general, Mary, nowadays, I guess post-COVID as well, like a lot has changed. What do you see as sort of the general top challenges for engineering leaders today? So right now, the hugest challenge for everybody is that we're in a downturn and we have an industry full of people who've never experienced one before. Like you can be really quite experienced. You can have 10 years of experience and never have been in a downturn before. And so I think this the very natural change that comes with that, which is to focus on sustainability and profitability and becoming self-sustaining as a business, not relying on the endless virtually free capital that we've had for the last 10 plus years is really challenging for people. And it's turning out really tough on folks to change their mindset. We've been in such excessive times of plenty that it's really, really difficult for people to get their head around the fact that like the books have to balance now we have to we don't just have an endless well of cash that we can spend um that's the mindset change that i'm seeing a lot of engineering leaders struggle with particularly because a lot of engineering leaders wait quite late in their careers before becoming commercially aware as well i think there's a lot of other disciplines and functions where you have to get really aware of like how budgets work and how money works quite early in your journey. You can get all the way to being an eng manager, sometimes even an eng director or a staff engineer or a principal engineer without ever caring about the money side of things in the times of plenty we've been living through, right? And so I think that's the big kind of mindset 
challenge that people are facing. I think the other reality is just that we, because we don't have endless headcount, people are struggling with how to balance their organizations. I'm seeing a lot of organizations flip back into any head I have has to be somebody senior. And then we're just cutting our industry off at the knees. If we're not developing up early career folks and mid-career folks as well, then then we're really going to struggle. But I understand that on the in this sort of naive and early understanding of budgets, you're just like, oh, I've only got one head. I've got to get the best possible seniority out of that head that I can get. It's a very, very different approach to what people are used to. And even talking about heads and headcount and budgets is something that a lot of people aren't used to. So I think that's the sort of new world that we're in. And then that carries over into how do you lead in a way that is still inspiring, in a way that is still empathetic and caring about people and realizing that caring about people deeply sometimes requires you to be kind and sometimes nice isn't kind. I think we've had a lot of years where poor performance didn't get dealt with or didn't get addressed because it was people were too used to being nice. There's a lot of engineering managers who feel like their role is more to defend their team than it is to lead their team. And I think that's the other, I suppose, quandary that I see a lot of uh, engineering managers in particular dealing with at the moment. So kind of how do you think today's managers and specifically engineering managers and kind of like the middle management in engineering organizations, how do you think can they support their teams best in a time like this? I think they can help their teams be really high performing because that is the ultimate defense against everything that's going on. If you deliver great customer value, if you deliver great technology, if you get shit done, then your team is the safest it can be. It's one of the best ways to invest in keeping your team doing well. And I think fundamentally being high performing is very overlapping with being happy. There's, you know, some famous research that was done by the Gallup group that resulted in the, what is my favorite, it makes me very nerdy, but it's my favorite management book. It's called First Break All the Rules. And it's my favorite management book because it's so database. They went looking for what made high performing teams. And the list of things that they found that make high performing teams it's kind of also the list that makes happy teams. And I think that that's a real, I think that people are actually happiest when they are high performing. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning going, today I'm aiming for just south of mediocre. And if I can mess everybody else up along the way, my day will be perfect. I don't think people are like that. I think people want to be great at what they do. And so I think the first thing that managers can do is to really help their teams be high performing. And that looks differently depending on what the challenges are your team has. Sometimes that's being a fantastic scrum master for them. Sometimes that's really looking after people's development so that they're getting the most out of everything. Sometimes it's clarifying the purpose of the team and how they're making an impact. Sometimes it's improving people's mastery. Sometimes it's getting to make sure that everybody has an equal say and that their voices are heard in what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. I think there's all different aspects to that. Because I think fundamentally the role of a manager is to create space in which great work can happen, create space in which people can be awesome. And if you look at, say, Dan Pink's drive, he talks about purpose, autonomy, and mastery, right? And when I look at the 12 questions from First Break All the Rules that predict high-performing teams, but as I say, also kind of describes happy to a great extent, then those three categories cover most of it. But I would add a fourth one, which is inclusion. So I think when you have purpose, believing in why, you have autonomy, uh, getting a say in what, you have mastery, feeling proud of how, and then you have inclusion, 
feeling like you belong, like that is the magic formula that adds up to high-performing teams, to happy teams, and to really sustained high performance. And just taking a step back and going like, where are my challenges? Are my challenges in purpose, in autonomy, in mastery, in inclusion? What do I need to do as a manager to make this a better environment for great work to happen in? I think that's a really powerful way to operate as a manager and and useful to take that step back because I think very often it's easy, particularly in those EM type roles, to get caught up in whatever this week's you know incident or issue or somebody wants a promotion or somebody's begging for a pay rise or it's very easy to get caught up in the tactical day-to-day and taking that step back to just think a little strategically about what's my diagnosis of this team what do they need and how can I help them is really valuable super super good points I think both this like tactics versus strategy when you drive those product and engineering teams but also the DNI point which I want to follow up on very pragmatically, as a very experienced tech leader, looking back on those like last, I don't know, 20 years, but especially with the emphasis in the last five, because I think that's where we made a lot of progress as a community. What have you seen work and not work when it comes to how to actually help teams to be more inclusive? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot doesn't work. Just adding people who are different and hoping it gets better doesn't work. Just adding diversity without caring about inclusion and belonging doesn't work. We've seen a lot that doesn't, right? But we've also seen a lot that does. There's some pretty amazing studies showing how diverse teams outperform homogenous teams, how they're more innovative, they're more effective, they're more performant, they're more profitable, uh, you know, when you look at boards and that kind of stuff as well. But it is, it's this huge topic and it's so hard to get our heads around such a huge topic. So at the risk of plugging my own thinking on it, I developed this model that I use with organizations to think about diversity and inclusion, which is effectively that I think there are three questions people are asking when they subconsciously or consciously, often subconsciously, they're asking these three questions when they decide whether to join somewhere, whether to stay there, whether to say yes to that promotion, whether to invest that extra energy they've got in their work or in something else, right? And those three questions are, am I expected here? Am I respected here? And can I be myself and be successful here? And if I break that down a little, am I expected here is, are people like me even expected to be here, right? If you're a practicing Muslim, you want to know that there's a prayer room and you want that to be told to you without you having to ask, because the minute you have to ask, they weren't expecting anybody who was like you to apply in the first place. I'm, I've got a physical disability. I've got Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. All my joints dislocate. Some days I'm on crutches. Some days I can walk. I'm lucky I've stayed out of a wheelchair till now. Although, you know, wheelchairs can be a real tool of freedom for disabled people. But for me personally, it's, you know, I'm grateful that I'm still on crutches. But I've never interviewed anywhere that I knew in advance whether I'd be able to get to the interview room if I was on crutches that day. When I interviewed at Monzo, it became a I had so many interviews and it became a running joke that I would turn up and have to teach a new Monzo employee how the elevator system worked in their own office because they just went up the stairs and there were plenty of days I just couldn't go up the stairs. My knee was going to dislocate and it was going to be pretty horrendous. And it became this ongoing joke I had with the security guard in the building that he was going to have to authorize somebody's card and and I was going to have to teach somebody new how to use the lift that day, which, you know, I'm senior enough and in demand enough that like I I can choose to use those as learning moments. But can you imagine if you were in a wheelchair or if you were on crutches every day and you turn up to that interview and you're like, oh, 
nobody's thought about the fact that these, this 27 stairs flight of stairs is just not possible for me, right? Or for some people, just going to put them in the worst possible start of interview frame of mind and setting, right? So am I expected is all about, are people like me even expected to be here? Am I respected is when people interact with me, do they see my differences as bugs or features, right? Do I get treated as if the ways that I'm different are something to be ignored or something to be embraced? And a lot of that is in the day-to-day is in things like microaggressions. So microaggression is things like telling little boys that they're very smart and little girls that they're very pretty, like telling really young children, we do this to them a lot, actually, that telling them that their worth is intrinsic in different ways, depending on their gender or their race or whatever else. And you get it a lot, even in quite modern offices, you get people going, but where are you really from to people of color? People going, you know, assuming that you have an opposite sex partner rather than, you know, being curious and finding out that you don't and and those kind of things. And so um, I particularly enjoy the one where people find out that I'm foreign and then they're like, oh, your English is very good. And I'm like, yeah, I've been speaking it my whole life. I'm, uh, I mean, I don't mean I was like a child prodigy who spoke it since birth or anything. Like I obviously learned to talk at the normal time, but you know, it's my mother tongue. It's my, it's my primary language. It's not surprising that I speak it well, but that assumption that because I'm from Africa, I must have a different mother tongue is, is in there. And it's not super hurtful or super problematic for me. People of color who are also immigrants, have a way tougher time with that kind of thing. But it's all these small ways that people emphasize difference or embrace difference. And I think that embracing is way better. And then that last question of can I be myself and be successful here is really about do you see people who are different from each other succeeding in this organization? You know, I joke sometimes, I'm the one the Daily Mail warns you about. I'm a woman working in tech. I'm actually non-binary, which is even worse. I'm an immigrant with a job, which I think is worse than living off the state, but I have to like check the headlines to be sure. And I'm autistic and I'm, I, I've got ADHD, so I'm neurodiverse in two ways. And I've got this physical disability and I'm queer and my wife is British. I'm over here stealing their women and their jobs, right? I'm like, I couldn't be less popular, but I grew up white in apartheid. So I really understand unasked, undeserved privilege. I had a shit ton of it when I was growing up. And I've never seen somebody who is an exact role model for me, who's different in all the exact same ways that I am. But I've definitely worked places where the leadership were different from each other. And I've worked places where it looked like the leadership probably shared, you know, matching tie and underwear to go with their matching haircuts, right? Um, <laughs> it was very hard to distinguish people from each other just in physically how they looked in a couple of places that I worked. So you need to be able to see that there are diverse routes to success as well when you're doing this. And sorry, I answered a very short question with like a entire like soapbox uh, (laughs) model for thinking about this entire really complex topic, but hopefully that's useful. Super useful. And the point about this podcast is to help new leaders moving into responsibility to actually learn from like real tactical, real world advice. I think this could not be more spot on. So don't you worry at all. I do have a follow-up question and then another one. So Anthony, I'm sorry for you. (laughs) I'm stealing all the time here. Um, The first one is you actually mentioned embracing differences is much better than actually kind of calling differences out and making people uncomfortable because of that. Could you be more specific about how you've seen um, differences being embraced? What's like a good other example where um, somebody is different and you actually feel like, oh, this is appreciated? And Yeah. So I think it's the difference between telling autistic people that we're very rude and valuing that we're very direct. 
I think embracing difference is about saying, isn't it wonderful that we have all these different people and during Ramadan, let's be re respectful of our Muslim colleagues who are fasting all day. Let's not run long or late meetings. Let's make sure that we make things easier. And then let's celebrate during Eid with them. It's even things like meeting mechanics. It's saying, hey, we're going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion so that we don't miss the introverts or the, the folks who've been you know, trained by society to not speak up, right? And I think it's all of those things. It's designing our systems so that they include everyone rather than allowing our existing systems, which bluntly have been cultivated over hundreds of years to uniquely benefit just one group, right? And that group is very white and very male and very straight in many cases, right? And so it's recognizing that just doing what we've always done is by default favoring a group that already has all the privilege, that already has all of the benefits. And so in order to change things, you have to like actively change those systems. And so it is, it's things like meetings, it's things like don't have a pitch for a pay rise process at your at your company. Don't make it how persuasive are you gets you more money. Make it how good are you at your job gets you more money. That means running proper calibration processes. It means being really, you know, really sure that you're rewarding the people who are having the most impact and have the highest potential, not just the people who are asking for the most, right? The squeaky wheel gets the grease is the classic saying, right? But it's definitely not a good way to run the talent in your organization. And so I think it's things like those. And Actually, with that framework I mentioned with those three questions, what I'll often do with an organization is give people a hat and say, okay, you are now the person who is sober. And I want you to think about whether you always feel expected, respected, and that like you can be yourself and be successful. And then they go, well, no, I'm not expected because we don't have anything social that doesn't revolve around alcohol, right? When you, you know, you give somebody that hat that they're a new parent or that they're a you know, somebody queer and married or somebody who's queer and not married, and you're asking them to move to another country where they might not be safe, like those kind of things, people just don't think about. And so a lot of it's about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and practicing that empathy in a really practical way. And I think that combination of like adopt an identity for the day and then ask yourself these questions can be really powerful. It's super cool. And I, I think anything that helps you to kind of get into the shoes of another person. It's just super, super powerful and we could use so much more of it because as you just said, sometimes it's very simple exercises like the hats that even in just brainstorming and decision-making processes will actually make a huge difference. So DNI oftentimes isn't actually an additional commitment of a lot of effort or time. It can be as simple as just like using the tools that exist. So thank you so much for bringing that back up. I would love to, to ask one more um, question on that topic and then we'll switch up. We'll switch it up a little bit again, which is being so successful in your career and representing so many underrepresented groups that you just walked us through. Thank you so much for being open about that as well. I really, really appreciate that. What advice would you have for anyone moving into kind of like leadership positions and not looking like 95% of the other people around them? Like, What has have you seen work for you? What would you maybe not attempt again? Anything really tactical helps. So the, the first thing I'd say is we're like the future. We're here. We're just not evenly distributed. So there are more people around than you realize. And we tend to be clustered in places that are good places to work. And so 
the first thing is, hey, look for those places where we're clustered. Look for those communities where you can find your tribe, for better or worse with that term, right? And I think that it's really important to try and find people who are like you because they will give you such better advice and such better mentoring than somebody who's wildly different from you. Lara Hogan has a great article about how women in tech are increasingly mentored, but it's not changing outcomes for us. We're not getting promoted any faster. We're not getting, we're not improving at all because many times that mentorship is coming from someone who's so different from us. It's not even safe for us to take that advice. If we do what they say, then we get reacted to differently than if, than if I'm not taking anything away from those mentors who are trying their best and doing their best. They're giving their best advice, but it's just not going to get reacted to the same way if you're really different from someone. And so Lara talks about how women are over-mentored and under-sponsored, and we need more sponsorship. So one thing that you can do as a leader at any level is to go, who needs you to be putting them forward for things and sponsoring them? And sponsorship happens when they're not in the room. It's not when you talk with them one-to-one. It's when you say, hey, you know who we should prioritize for that project? This person. It's saying, let's remember everybody we've got and really make mindful choices about who we give development opportunities to. Let's not just default to it being the person who asks the most. And I think that's one of the really powerful things for for all new leaders to do, particularly if you're from an underrepresented background, is to note that you can be a sponsor, but you can also find people who want to be allies and make them accomplices, you know, Involve them in your crimes for once. Uh, Doretti Hopper says this thing about being an accomplice, not an ally. And I love it. I, it's so much more active. And so I think that's one of the things is to go and advocate for people yourself, but also find the people who are alongside you who want to help and just don't know how to do it and say to them, I need you to echo me when I say we should put this person forward. I need you to go meet with this person so you realize how great they are. And then I want you to advocate for them as well. And I think it's just weaponizing that support and what Anwan Simmons calls lending privilege. He does a fantastic talk. If you haven't had him on the podcast, hugely recommend him. He's an amazing person to interview and a really great engineering leader. But he has this fantastic talk called Lending Privilege, which gives me goosebumps just talking about it. That's how good a talk it is. I can't recommend it enough. People should definitely go watch it. But all about those things that you can do that you realize you know, every one of us has some privilege, even, you know, I was, you know, joking about being the one the Daily Mail warned you about, but I still have white privilege. I still have people perceive me to be cisgender and I have that privilege and I can use it. I can do something with it. And I think that's valuable as well. But back to your question, you asked me, like, what, what advice do I give to those leaders? One is be visible, but be aware that you may get attacked more than other people. And that is an unfortunate reality. So protect yourself when you need to. Be as visible as you can safely be, but protect yourself when you need to. And I think also like find your support network. I'm really lucky. I have a, we jokingly call ourselves the lady boss cabal, and it's a set of women who are all really senior technology leaders, and I'm not going to give away any names, but having that group to call up and say, hey, I'm facing something really tough. Can I talk it through with you, you folks, really helps me. And I think that kind of peer support group is super important. And finding some people who are like you to have that support from is really important. And then, you know, remember that we're here, we're just not evenly distributed. So figure out where people like you are, 
and maybe also gravitate toward those places because there's some indication that it's a safe place to be if you find those folks. You've mentioned protecting yourself. Have you had any kind of learnings or, or best practices on that part? Because I find I so hear you on this. I oftentimes personally also struggle on that front where I'm like, oh, wow, I'm like all the way out there now. Like no idea <laughs> if anything happens, no safety nets here. So what have you seen work for yourself or for others in that front? I'm probably, I probably default to being a bit more out there than many people are. And some of that's because I'm in a very like stable, secure, personal situation, right? So I'm, I'm married to a, been, been married to the same woman for a very long time. We've been together 21 years. Um, thank you. Um, and that def being married like deflects a lot of the really unfortunate attention, which I think is useful. And so I'm not as locked down as some people are, but I think it is sensible to be very careful about your personal details, to be very careful about how findable your address is, to, you know, be very choiceful about whether you keep your DMs open and all of those things and be ready for when, when somebody decides to target you, know who you're going to call and say, hey, I need some help. I need somebody else to just be pushing the block button on this ridiculous hate that I'm getting for, you know, for no reason, or because somebody decided that today was the day they were going to make my life hell. But, you know, I've also lived through seeing Kathy Sierra, who's an amazing woman in our industry, driven off the internet multiple times now, you know, she came back for a while, and then got harassed away again. And so I live quite openly, but I'm always in the where in the back of my mind, it could be me next. And I think it's super tough. So I don't have the best advice here. It's the usual kind of operational security stuff of like, keep your data quiet and know what you do and have a plan for what you do. If you're, you know, if you got swatted or if you, if your personal details were published, how do you get away from it? How do you get help is sadly something that's worth thinking about in advance. Yeah. Super helpful. Thank you. I mean, awesome advice all around, Mary. I'm curious, and I would imagine a lot of it still applies, but I'd be curious, would you add anything for someone just coming into a like the first quote-unquote leadership position in their career? So like the first-time manager, one that's just starting to almost grapple with the very beginnings of what leadership even means? Curious if you'd add anything to that individual or person. The thing I'd add there is it is going to be so tempting to go hide in the code. It is going to be so tempting to go hide in the things that you're already great at that got you where you are. But the reality is moving into leadership and particularly moving into management, which are not synonymous, right? Like leadership, you can be a leader without being a manager. You can be a manager without being a leader. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not a great career path. But particularly management is a career change. It's not a promotion. Much as we like to celebrate when people get that step, it's a career change. It's not a promotion. It's a whole new career that you're at the bottom layer of, the bottom rung now, starting over learning something new. And so the key advice I'd have is it's going to be so tempting to go hide in what you're already good at because it's what, you know, it's what got you here. But what got you here won't get you there. And so you have to put that down and keep yourself accountable that you're spending the majority of your time on your people and your team. Because otherwise, you'll be three, four years down the road, and you'll be a shitty manager. And now you won't even be a great IC anymore, because you've been spending so much of your time managing in that time. 
And so if you don't want to invest time in getting good at the people part, for all that is holy, save yourself and the rest of us from you. Don't become a manager unless you are willing to put the work in to get great at the people side. And don't become a leader if you're not willing to put the work in to get great at the leadership side. And like I said, I don't think leader and manager are synonymous. I think you can be a leader without being a manager. But it, again, requires you to spend time away from what you have been so good at up till now. And that's what makes it uncomfortable, but it's also what makes it such a great growth opportunity is you get to get good at a new thing, but it means leaving behind some stuff that's sometimes really difficult to let go of, including for me. I sucked at stepping away from the tech because I was so good at it. I loved it so much. It was the easy thing for me. It was the palatable thing for me. And I hid in it for far too long. And I think it's super easy to do that. I actually wanted to, I wanted to hold here because some of my favorite moments on this podcast have been engineering leaders talking about that first moment they became either an engineering manager or something else. So I'd love to, I'd love to do two things here. One, if you don't mind, just share what that experience was like for you. And then I'd love to kind of connect that to, you've said it a couple of times now, and obviously something we live by, the difference between management and leadership. So would love to know what that moment was like and then sort of connect into your version of management and leadership. So my real like, oh shit moment was when I became a manager. And I became a manager when I was in my very early 20s. And my first two direct reports were both older than my dad. And they were very affectionately known as Statler and Waldorf. You know, the two old men in the Muppets who sit up on the balcony and shout at everybody. And I was terrified because I'd had some bad managers and I knew I didn't want to be a bad manager, but I had not really yet figured out what a great manager looked like. I knew what good looked like, but I didn't know what great looked like. And I remember the first time these two gents brought me a real issue and they took me into a meeting room and they were both sat with their arms folded opposite me. Like I'm, you know, the latest in the bunch of young idiots that they had to deal with. And they explained the problem to me and I went, oh, and if that breaks, it's a real problem because then this breaks as well, right? And I remember still, like, I'm not very visual, but I can remember the moment that they kind of turned to each other, kind of nodded, unfolded their arms and then leaned forward and solved the problem with me. And so I remember being absolutely terrified. But in that case, what saved me was my technical skill. What saved me was that I could understand the detail of what what they were talking about and was able to help them. But I went into it trusting that I knew nothing and not trying to prove to them that I was, you know, right to be in the position I was in, but just like very plainly going like, you guys know best. But if I understand that, I think this is what's wrong, right? And then that's going to have the follow on effects of this and this and this. And so it was pretty terrifying. I did a long service award for one of those two guys when he hit his 30 years in the company. And I was in my mid-20s at that point. <laughs> that was like four years before I was alive, Ian joined the company. Uh, was a very weird sentence. I didn't quite put it like that, but it was a very weird experience. And so I, I think the scariest thing for me in becoming a, a new manager was knowing that I knew nothing, but I still mm. needed to help and help career development for people who had literally been in the company longer than I'd been alive. And that made me very, very, very invested in getting 
great app management. And so I, I'm a nerd. And so what I did was I went looking for books and looking for research and looking for data and science that would tell me what great looked like. And that's where a lot of my kind of management theory and management philosophy came from, I suppose, all this stuff around like purpose, autonomy, mastery, inclusion, and a lot of how I set teams up and how I, uh, how I manage them and how I'm effective at that came from me having this absolutely terrifying prospect as my first management experience where I was just like, they have every reason to not believe in me. I have every reason to not believe in me. Oh shit, I've got to make that a different answer very, very fast. <laughs> so so that was my experience there. In terms of the difference between leadership and management, I think there's a difference between setting strategy and giving direction and helping people know why and what, and then actually making it happen. And so there's this classic anecdote of, you know, the manager, if you've got a group of people hacking their way through the jungle, the manager's the one who like organizes people into shifts and makes sure that people are eating and makes sure somebody's collecting water and makes sure somebody's sharpening tools and makes the process run well. The leader's the one who climbs the top, tallest tree and is like, shit, we're going the wrong direction. <laughs> Turn around. And I think that those two skill sets are, are both very valuable. You need to be going in the right direction, but you also need to not be dehydrated and working with blunt tools and all the rest of it. And I, I have a personal vendetta against the bad name that management has gotten, because I don't think manager should be a dirty word. I think we all hate bad bosses. Bad bosses are pointless. They're empty suits. They're useless. They're, you know, the pointy haired guy in Dilbert. That's a bad boss. And we rightfully should vilify bad bosses. We should hate the seagull style of management, fly in, shout at everybody, shit on everything, fly away again, right? None of that should be okay. We can banish bad bosses, but good managers are super, super valuable. And you can have great leadership and lack good management and you just burn through people. And that is not cool. And that I've, I'm fundamentally opposed to. So I really want there to be a resurgence in us taking pride in being good managers. I think it's something that's really important and really valid and useful. And there's a difference between being, you know, when I was first looking at what does minimum viable management look like? And I was like, okay, it's being a good bullshit umbrella, right? But I think we have this tendency now that people take that a little too far. Nick Means has done a great talk where he talked about it. It's actually better to be a heat shield because people know it's hot over there. They can kind of see what's happening, but they're protected from it. And that's what you want. You don't want to start talking about like transparent shit umbrellas. That's not an image anybody needs. But I think this heat shield thing is a useful one because you want to protect people, but your job is not just to protect people as a manager. Your job is to help them be effective, help them be high performing. And there are some managers, particularly at the kind of middle management layer, who end up too much believing that they're meant to be like a union rep or a shop steward. And those are very valuable roles. And I am very in support of people unionizing for the record. But like your manager's role is to look after your career, look after you and try to get you to be as high performing and as high and to reach your potential as much as possible. And if you only do the first two bits of those, you're being nice, but not kind. You're helping, you're protecting people too much sometimes. Super well said. And I'd love to just zoom in once more to that middle manager and empathize with them for a second and ask another very specific question. That transition from IC to manager comes with these problems and these challenges and many more. 
And I think the reason why we've chosen to serve them, at least initially, is because they do have a very hard job, right? They got people yell, you know, not yelling at them, but claiming things from the bottom and they got claiming things from the top. They're in the middle, whether you have any kind of umbrella, you know, heat shield, you're trying to use what you have, right? And then you're trying to pull books like you did in your story. It's a really tough job. And I think you also end up in a, um, and there's this whole, you know, maker manager conversation as well, particularly in the engineering discipline, you end up having to design your, a completely different cadence, really, right? Like almost a completely different schedule. And if you don't really get it right, we were just talking to an engineering leader the other week who basically said, this is what a lot of my, like our trial engineering managers, this is what they don't, they just simply can't almost to a degree self-manage and figure out that structure. So I'm very curious what, what your advice is for that phase. And we're talking about that like first time sort of when you're making that leap, right? So I think one of the best bits of advice for that stage as a leader and as a manager is to really take a close look at your own energy management. So Lara Hogan's written about this. Sally Late did a great article about it where she went through her calendar and realized that it had just organically grown into something that actually didn't suit her very well at all. And she deals with some chronic fatigue uh, kind of challenges and is, is pretty open about that and did this amazing blog post about how she had basically like color-coded her calendar according to the different energy requirement that it had on her and then reorganized it to make it a better balance. And so I think that's one of the things is to, you know, figure out about yourself. Are you someone who thrives on having back-to-back one-to-ones? Or can you not imagine anything worse than back-to-back one-to-ones for a whole day? Like I'm someone who I love going into one-to-one mode and then doing as many of them in a row as I can get as can fit in my calendar, because then I'm just totally focused on the person on a one-to-one level. I do a bunch of those in a row. I take really good notes is the only way that I'm capable of doing that. And I get a lot of energy from interacting with people. And so it's not draining for me. For someone who's more introverted by nature or just, you know, finds that to be a different experience, they may want to space them out over the course of the week, right? But I think there's a couple of things scheduling wise. One is accept that the feedback loop on management work is wildly different to the feedback loop on IC work. IC work, you're like, I write the new bit of code and all the tests pass. That's something you can measure in minutes. In management, you're measuring things in, if you're lucky, weeks. If you're unlucky, months or years, right? Like how somebody getting promoted, that's something that happens every few years. It's not something that you can measure in, in the short term, right? So accept and realize that the feedback loops are a different set of things and think about your work as a set of feedback loops and make sure that you've got them closing appropriately. Are you reflecting and reviewing appropriately? Consider your energy and figure out whether you're best to distribute your one-to-ones and your sessions through the week, or you know, do you want a big block of them together so then you can block out some thinking time for a particular day or whatever else? And actively design your calendar. Like stop and think, hey, you know what? I have some stuff every week that I need a couple of hours just to concentrate on it. Trust me, those couple of hours will not organically happen in your calendar. You have to make them happen. You have to force them to happen if you want them to exist. And so plan it that way. And then think about the same thing for your team members, right? Is your weekly planning with your team at a time that's actually sensible for everybody? Or is it breaking up the biggest uh, set of contiguous hours that somebody's got to concentrate? Is your retro at the right time? Is your, you know, all of those kind of things I think are useful to consider as well. And a lot of what we can bring to management is this 
habit that we have of thinking of things in systems and that we bring with us from being developers, that we bring with us from being engineers, we're able to look at things as a series of systems that have inputs and outputs and figure out how to make that sustainable. And I think that's something that's really valuable to do as a new leader and manager. You've already mentioned one principle, I think, thinking in systems and actually considering the change that you create as a system. Any other principles that you've established for yourself that you live by as a manager? So one of them is that um, <laughs> testing is really difficult with people, but observability is easier. <laughs> so what I mean by that is it's it's very tough to test in advance changes that you're making to people and to people processes because people don't have a lot of patience for that. And it's very difficult. To, like you can run a pilot or something, but it's very difficult to get a true view of whether something's going to work or not. And so it's better to say, how am I going to know if this change is working and how will I observe whether that change is helpful than it is to always try to test it in advance the way we would with tech. And then the the other principle that I very much live by is that like culture add matters a lot more than culture fit. Like how someone is going to add to the culture is so much more important than whether they like fit in with what you've already got. Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot of sense for obvious reasons, <laughs> but very good reminders. And last but not least, and I appreciate that you've spent this time with us because all each and every answer, I feel like unfolds a whole universe. So I, can't wait to publish this episode and also to kind of distill the like bits and nuggets. I think you've given the audience and us so much. So thank you for that. And my favorite question I get to steal also today from Anthony, he always asks this, is if you were to go back in time to your, this may be mid-20s self that just took on responsibility and was giving the 30 um, years loyalty award, if you have given yourself advice, what would it be knowing what you know today? your career probably you're gonna find your people sooner than you think because i i had had some really great role models at that point in my career but i was a lot more technical than most of them i was at procter and gamble for the first 10 years of my career and i was in this really much more of an it type role rather than an engineering type role and it was not that long after that that i kind of realized i was going to be a great it professional and a terrible technologist and that was the wrong way around for me and so I left P&G after 10 years and went to the government digital service in the end. But I, uh, when I was leaving, I was thinking about Google or Amazon or, you know, interviewing at a number of the big tech companies. And I'm, you know, from an AI background originally. So I've been having, it's amusing to me that Google can't keep track of the fact that they've been talking to me about AI jobs for every six months for like my whole career. They, you know, if they're trying to organize the world's information, they should be a little better at, uh, at keeping track of that from a recruitment perspective. But I, you know, I, I was considering going to a high tech firm and then a guy called Tom Loosemore rang me up and was like, hey, we're going to fix the government and you can go join Google anytime. You can only fix the government once. Come and help us build Gov UK. And so that was what I went and did. So yeah, the advice I would give my younger self would be just hang in there. You're going to find your people and you're going to be much happier. Super wise. And I think it's a unique one. We have a bonus question, <laughs> a bonus question this time, because we have some few minutes left with Mary, which is an amazing opportunity to ask you that. Um, because you've been so actionable and tactical in all the learnings that you've shared with us today, I actually want to ask this one, which is a bit of a nerdy one, but I think very helpful. How do you see empathetic leadership and inclusive leadership and high performance? And are there any further tips and frameworks that you have for us that help especially new leaders navigate both of 
these things. Yeah. So I think, like we talked about purpose, autonomy, mastery, inclusion, that's the primary network, uh, sorry, framework that I would suggest. The other thing that I would suggest to new leaders, though, when they're trying to be empathetic is it's very easy to think what's called the the golden principle, I think, is called, you know, treat others as you want to be treated. But the platinum principle is treat others as they want to be treated. And so don't assume that you understand someone. Don't be afraid to ask what they actually want, what they actually need. And you will learn more by getting to the point where you can have that conversation with them and truly understand them than if you just try always to do what you think that they would want. Like get to the point, build trust with people so you can get to the point of having that more open conversation about what great really feels like. And people can be surprisingly different, right? I know people who love being applauded in public when they get something right. And I know people, I managed somebody once who the best thing I ever did for her as a manager was agree that anytime she was going to get publicly recognized, she would know in advance and she would be allowed to manufacture an incident that she had to deal with. So she would never have to stand up in front of the organization and receive the praise. And like, she was an amazing operations manager. She's one of the my favorite people I've ever worked with. And she absolutely hated if you wanted to give her an award or something. She quite liked, you know, getting the award, but didn't want it in front of people for any reason. And so, you know, tailor how you manage to how people really are and what they really want rather than what you think they might want. Can I ask a devil's avocado on that one? Because I deeply believe in that principle too. What I also sometimes run up against in my own reality, but also when discussing this point with others is how do you make it so that the system becomes a system that can incorporate all the like different needs of individuals and still act as a system so can give like transparent orientation? I don't know, like there's examples around, let's say, stock option compensation and things like that, that we typically tackle with bans and kind of classifications and stuff to make it so like, oh, it's we're not going to de decide based on like who you are and other things, how much you actually get in your comp package, but we actually make it like predictable and principles-based and rules-based, so it's more objective for everyone. How to combine both of these moments? So I think a lot of the time when people need the empathetic variation is much more in the one-to-one -one stuff. So I gave a kind of more public version, but I think actually the core activity of a manager is a great one-to-one. -one. And a great one-to-one -one should be like a personal retro. It should be going, helping your employee reflect on recent times, what's working, what's not, what are they going to change? And I think starting that out by helping them to reflect and giving them time to reflect, not jumping straight in with your own feedback, not jumping straight in with your own opinions is really important. And so I think if you start with that as the basic building block, then adjusting how you run one-to-ones, how you operate with someone, how you run their growth discussions, how all of those kind of things, I think there's a lot of flex viable within an existing, hopefully well-designed and unbiased system. So I, I think it's actually very possible to vary it. And, you know, some people keep little files on their team members, right? Like I've talked about Lara Hogan a lot, but she's just such an amazing writer on this topic. But like, you know, she talks about how do you do your first ever one-to-one? -one? And one of the things she asks is, what's their favorite baked good? Like, what's the thing they want as a treat when they do great, right? 
and hers is donuts, but maybe theirs is banana bread. And she wants to know, like, how do I make your day when you've done something great? Like, we're in the same office. What can I drop on your desk that's going to make you happy? And, you know, some people have different opinions about that kind of stuff. And you can you can tailor it. One of the gentlemen that I mentioned earlier, who who I managed to, who was 30 years in the company, he hated team meetings. And I said, well, what could I serve at a team meeting that would make you willing to come to them? And he said, hot dogs folded his arms like that was the end of the conversation so i bought a hot dog machine and i passed it on to the next leader of the team i was like if you want ian at your at your team meetings here is the hot dog machine it was this little thing with like with rollers like in the cinema to heat the hot dogs up and you put the buns in the it like looked like a hot dog stand you put the buns in the top and it warmed them up or whatever and we had team meetings that smelled like hot dogs every week because that was the way that he was willing to come to the meeting and i was like you know what this is a a flex that I'm willing to make. That's it's okay. You know, if everybody was wanting wildly different things, you got to find a way through. But I think that there are ways to find a way through. Most of the time, it's actually like there is practical kind of compromises that organically also happen. Like not everyone is equally vehement about each of the details and stuff. And groups are pretty good at this type of thing, typically. My second bonus question, which is very, very like uh, selfish and informed by own experience without going into further detail, is I think you wrote and spoke on tech depth uh, multiple times and I've been uh, digging that up. And of course, I would love to understand kind of your advice or learnings over time as well and like how to make friends with tech depth and kind of like accept it as part of our journeys when we build products and not let it go in, get in your way as you kind of scale teams and scale systems. So the the most useful thing about tech that I ever learned, I learned from Jonas Templestein, who's the, the CTO at Monzo. And he said, tech debt is like real debt. It's not a problem to borrow money to get something faster. It's a problem if the interest repayments get too difficult to handle. And so the conversation I have a lot with other executives is, it's fine that sometimes when we want to go fast or we're not sure if this is the long-term solution or we're not even sure if the customer is going to like this version of the product, it's okay to build something quick and dirty and get it out there. And sometimes the value of learning is so much greater than the value of doing it perfectly the first time. And I think that that's often true. A lot more companies have died because they took too long trying to build the perfect thing than because they took a short amount of time building the good enough thing, right? Definitely the case. The problem comes when you're putting your mortgage repayment on a credit card every month, right? And that's the thing that people got to worry about. And so by introducing that concept of it as similar to financial interest, then you're going, okay, but like how much time is our team spending every month dealing with the fact that we made some of these short-termist decisions earlier on? And I've joined organizations before and discovered that 60 to 70% of the team's capacity is being used just keeping the lights on because of tech debt, because there's this reality of these long decisions that were made. And when you show somebody that, when you're like, okay, you have 100 people, 60 to 70 of them are just keeping the thing you've already got running. No wonder your velocity is not where you'd like it. No wonder your customers are pissed off that things aren't happening, right? And so I think that's when it's worth having these conversations. And the challenge that everybody has is we we let those interest payments ball up until they're unable to be dealt with. And then we have to do major, major refactors or huge programs of work to get rid of tech data. We're spending 
50% of our available capacity just on tech debt. And that's a tough reality to be in. And so I think the smarter thing is to, as soon as you're able to say, you know what, every sixth sprint or one week out of every five, or, you know, I don't think it's one out of four or one out of two. I think it's a better ratio than that. Let's spend it going. How do we make it easier to iterate fast? And how do we make it more scalable? And that's the mission for the team in those sprints or in those iterations. And I think that and having a proper roadmap and backlog for the things that are causing you drama is what's worth doing. And be really clear when it's true tech debt, which is we took a shortcut in order to get somewhere. And when it's just our thing is poorly designed. (laughs) Because I think you end up with, because now people kind of understand this term of tech debt, a lot gets lumped under that, that headline. And it's not always super accurate. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I was just reflecting on uh, how we like used to use it. I think that also changed over time. But really great advice on the on the financial metaphor or mental model. I think that's super helpful. And I think this like list of improvements also another super cool nugget because I think oftentimes we kind of have these things flying around as as products kind of get built up and teams work and having that magic list where you just like keep adding things that you can return to every X and Y cycles or sprints or whatever you're used to or tickets <laughs> on like Kanban style. I think it's really, really helpful. Thank you so much. It's been an incredible, yeah, over an hour at this point, sharing of insights, wisdom and learnings. And I learned so much. I don't know how about you, Anthony. I'm going to need one of those nice cool down periods that are not structured in my calendar, Mary, to come off this podcast, because this was, it was full of, uh, it was absolutely too full of insights. I I can't wait to re-listen to it as well to sort of, as Daria said, extract the nuggets. And I'm sure the audience is going to be eating it up. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you all very much. And if you'd like to hear more of this kind of stuff, I know this is a fantastic podcast, but I also help uh, run the Lead Dev Conference, which is coming up at the end of June. Uh, in London. We'll be running in San Francisco and in Berlin later in the year as well. And it's specifically for engineering managers and engineering leaders who are trying to grapple with these kind of topics. So I I really hope to see some folks there. We'll be there. Super cool. And we'll obviously add the link to that and also the few links that you mentioned with the talks for everyone to check that out. And if you want to get in touch with Mary, we'll also add your LinkedIn and your Twitter. Uh, in case you're curious, uh, please reach out. And thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all that you've shared. Yeah, very happy to. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests would join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.